Hi, my name is Mike Diedrich. I'm here with Michael McPherson for the Viet Metrics for Peace radio show in Chapter uh, 92 in Seattle. It's being broadcast on KODX 96.9 and will also be available on the Veterans for Peace VFP92.org website. Uh, this, uh, this month we're going to be talking about, uh, or let me back up a little bit. I'll give a short statement of purpose for Veterans for Peace. We, having dutifully served our nation, do hereby affirm our greater responsibility to serve the cause of world peace. To this end, we will work with others to increase public awareness of the costs of war, to restrain our government from intervening overtly and covertly in the internal affairs of other countries, to end the arms race and to reduce and eventually eliminate nuclear weapons, to seek justice for veterans and victims of a war, and to abolish war as an instrument of national policy. So this week we will talk about uh, hopefully two things. The first thing that's on top we're going to be talking about is the veterans and their participation in the Capitol Hill and Capitol riot January 6th last year. Uh, um, and then perhaps a little later in the show, we'll talk about the ongoing crisis in Ukraine. Um, you want to uh, do some, some uh, comments first, Michael? Yeah, sure. Hello, everybody. Thank, thank you for uh, listening in. Um, we uh, have two guests uh, with us today, um, uh, Kelly Wadsworth and um, um, Randy Rowland. <laughs> Once we got your name, Randy. <laughs> um, and we're going to have them introduce themselves. Um, and then after that, I'm going to play uh, a little bit of a video. Actually, you're just going to hear the sound. Um, from a previous president of Veterans for Peace. Um, his name is David Klein. Um, he's no longer with us. He died in 2007. Um, but uh, he was a very important part of helping to um, bring the veterans together that form Iraq Veterans Against the War, who are now about face. Um, and he also uh, played a, a big role in the early days of the anti-war movement um, after the invasion of Iraq. And he actually, uh, when I met him, he brought me into the peace movement. And I wanted people to listen to it because um, one of the subjects we're going to talk about today is uh, veterans' participation in the January 6th insurrection in Washington, D.C. Um, and uh, David made some comments in, um, I think it was 2005 in federal North Carolina at the first Iraq Veterans Against the War uh, uh, gathering, um, big gathering. That thing's relevant to it. And then the second thing we're going to talk a little bit about is uh, one of the things that's in the news a lot today, um, the uh, crisis in Europe um, with the Ukraine and Russia and the United States role in that. So, um, Kelly, why don't you introduce yourself and then uh, we'll go to Randy. Sounds good. Nice to see you again. Yeah. Michael and Mike and Randy. My name is Kelly Wadsworth, and I am a member of Veterans for Peace. I'm currently living in Salem, Oregon, although the Seattle VFP chapter continues to be my home chapter. Um, and it's good to be here. I'm looking forward to these topics. Um, I think they're going to be, they, they just preparing for it caused me to grow in some of my own thinking. So thank you for the invitation. Yeah, Kelly, before we go to Randy, just briefly tell people a little bit about your service and what you do. 
Yes. Um, I served in the Army in Reserves, Guard, and Active Duty between 2001 and 2011 as a chaplain. Um, my unit was deployed in 2008. We came back in 2009. Um, so I was in Balad, Iraq for that year. Um, and a good portion of my service was with the Washington State National Guard. Um, that's the that's the quick version of my service. All right, thank you, Randy. Hi, well, my name is Randy Rowland. I was an Army medic back in the '60s, 1960s, um, and uh, turned against the Vietnam War um, while I was uh, taking care of the wounded, and um, ultimately was uh, be, uh, tried to become a conscientious objector. And uh, in um, and at some a certain point, I was convicted of mutiny uh, while I was uh, in the army, um, and uh, did uh, some significant time uh, for that. Um, and I've been a member of uh, the Seattle Veterans Peace Chapter. I was a founding member, one of the founding members of the Seattle Veterans for Peace Chapter, um, along with Mike and others, um, uh, way back whenever that started. I, I live in Seattle now. All right. Thank you. Thank you, Andy. Uh, so, yeah, we're going to talk a little bit about the insurrection uh, that took place uh, January 6th. And let me go ahead and play this uh, clip from um, the Rock Veterans Against the War, first gathering in Federal, North Carolina. And I believe it was 2005. Central America, I opposed the war in the first Persian Gulf War. And now we're back in the same cycle again. So I'm coming here as a veteran of the Veterans Peace Movement. And one of the things I've learned is that in, in doing this is I've done, learned to study the history of our movements. And see now veterans have always, after a war, had to come back in this country and fight for their rights. You know, this country has, and it may be true of every country, really. It may be true of every country because when you go to war, you're not fighting for yourself, you're fighting for someone else, usually for rich people. And uh, when you come back, you're the leftover. You know, like we like to say about veterans, they're like a condom, you use it once and throw away. And um, so the history of this country, as an American, I've studied my country a little bit, and the history of this country going back to the beginning is one of veterans standing up for their rights. Shays Rebellion was a veterans movement, you know? Uh, the bonus march. The bonus march was a, an effort by the people to get some uh, some help after uh, during the depression. But let's also remember the Ku Klux Klan was a veterans movement. You know, there's nothing in, that makes a veterans movement inherently progressive. A veterans movement could be a progressive movement or a fascistic movement. Schmedley Butler, who many of us respect as one of the great leaders. They attempted to recruit him during the 30s for a fascistic coup d'etat against Roosevelt. Big business tried to do that. So we always have to keep clear in our mind what, who we are and what we're fighting for. I think this is really significant because it's easy to get into the veterans movement and not what kind of veterans movement. All right. so. Um, since I'm the one that wanted to play the clip, uh, um, but we can actually get back to it. 
Um, there's a few things I want to say real quick. One of the reasons Mike and I thought about uh, doing this is because there is a good number of veterans who participated in the insurrection. And I found um, an article that, that talks about how many people are being charged with something. And it's about, it's an insider um, article um, where they also have a table of all the people and a little um, blurb uh, about what they're being charged with and stuff. And NPR actually has a table too with a little blurb um, about each one of them. Um, so Insider says there's 761 people at this point, and this was uh, December um, when this table was made, um, and 761 people. Then I found another article that says over 80 of those charged, 81 people actually, in the January 6th investigation have ties to the military. So that's around, I guess, around 12%, maybe 12 point something percent of the people. And I think about 7% of the U.S. population um, is serving, has served or is serving in the military. So that's that's a little bit of an out proportion number. Um, so that's one thing. I don't know how impressed I am by that. But there are some other things that, um, you know, concern me. Uh, one of them being some of the things that Klein said in his comments. Uh, so, Mike, do you want to say anything? And then we just. Uh, yeah, just to sort of add to what you started. Uh, according to actually the uh, Military Times, they're, they're estimated as one in five of the people who were actually inside, marked inside the Capitol, broke into the Capitol, are veterans or, or, or not active duty military. They know five. Uh, five uh, people who are actually active due to the military, including a lieutenant colonel and a major, a Marine Corps major. So it's it's a uh, it's a major issue if you're talking about 20% of the people who actually broke into the building are actually veterans or, or active due to the military. It's it's a huge statistic. Um, it's also interesting that some of these people are actually police officers, and police officers are actually uh, swear to defend the constitution against all enemies. So they're actually ex-military and police who have actually sworn twice to defend the constitution. But some of these people chose to break in with others and in, uh, in the Capitol Hill, Capitol riot. So uh, the, uh, there are also some other remarks made about ties to right-wing organization. Again, I'm quoting sort of the military times and says, was a study done by um, Military Times and a Syracuse University Institute for Veterans and Military Families who said one third of actually active duty uh, troops had actually had personally witnessed examples of white nationalism or ideological driven racism in recent months. So that's, that's actually part of the, the narrative of the breaking of the Capitol. One particular uh, uh, police officer, talk, a black police officer talked about the racial uh, epithets that were hurled at him as he was trying to defend the Capitol, uh, which is just, I, I find it almost unbelievable really. Probably some of these people were veterans that we're talking to another guy. He may have been a veteran himself, a, a police officer trying to defend the Capitol. So, I think it's a bigger problem than we realize. You may recall that uh, 
the 11 police officers from the Seattle area were involved in the riot. Six of them actually went inside. Two have been suspended. I don't know if those people actually are ex-military, but there's a lot of police that are ex-military. Yeah. No. Well, Kelly, um, you know, hearing all this and obviously living through the period and being a veteran yourself, I mean, what are your thoughts? Uh, I have to say that I have been shocked, like as the charges are coming out, like how many are veterans um, like that part that that part is discouraging to me that that that's kind of the direction that some veterans have gone. Um, I for me, it comes back to kind of this this whole concept of like when when veterans come back from war, like what is the governing like civilian mission? Like what is, what is our understanding of what we're doing here? Like it's a little existential, but, but I think if there's a vacuum for the answer to that question, then it can easily get filled with right wing extremism. It can easily get filled with like, like Klein said, like, not all veterans movements are progressive or helpful or building up, you know, the broader civilian community. So I think there's, there's this question that's kind of underlying, not just veterans, but I think a lot of American society of like, what, what kind of in military terms, what is the mission? Like, what is our point and what are we working towards? And so if it's not war, then it's suggested that it's peace, but if that's not made clear or overt, or if it really is war underneath because of our military industrial complex, right? Then I think it can become murky and veterans can um, kind of not know which way to go and get wrapped up in things like an insurrection at the Capitol. Right, uh, I appreciate that. Um, Mandy? Well, I think all you got to do is look at coups around the world um, to see that uh, the possibilities of, it, of things going a good way and a bad way is how many coups have we heard of in various countries where, you know, it's military coups that uh, uh, where the military in one form or another, sometimes it's the, the whole chain of command and sometimes it's some portion of the chain of command. Um, have you know seized power um, from you know civilian governments, and uh, I would say the majority of times when that's happened, it hadn't gone well. You know, um, uh, it's, and I imagine that the Pentagon had to been you know um, laying a few bricks, um, so to speak, uh, uh, when they realized you know that there's this whole right wing thing going on both within the ranks of the military and, and uh, to a lesser degree, I imagine they're not as worried about veterans as they are the active duty. But, uh, you know, their whole notion, of course, is that whatever side the Pentagon comes down on, they want all of the troops to loyally follow orders and do whatever they're supposed to do, whether it's shoot their own people or invade another country or, you know, go do hurricane relief, you know, um, um, you know, the, the whole notion of the military is that the, that the troops are going to 
respond to command and and do whatever they're supposed to do. Um, and uh, when I think that there's some kind of a purge going on within the military, as I understand it, or has gone on, it might be done now. Um, um, uh, because all of a sudden, I think the military planners uh, and bigwigs um, realized that they didn't necessarily have the loyalty of the troops. Unfortunately, what we're talking about here is a right-wing breakout, um, you know, um, and, but, you know, that, that happens, you know. Um, going into the elections, the Pentagon, as best I could tell, was faced with a dilemma because I think they saw Trump's shenanigans coming down the pike and, and, and kind of knew that there was a significant uh, chance that, that um, Trump would try to use the military against the American public and seize power through you know, illicit you know, means. And, and you know, there was all those reports about how they were saying, well, you know, in these last days, uh, don't, don't hit any buttons or invade anybody without getting authorization from, you know, the real Pentagon, you know, and that kind of stuff. And they were clearly trying to maneuver around. In a, in a way, interestingly enough, that dilemma is the same dilemma that um, Colonel Chavez in Venezuela had. You know, uh, there was this uprising in Venezuela uh, back in 89 or something. And the, and the um, Venezuelan people were pissed off at their government and, and, um, uh, and the military was called out and put them down and, you know, like 20 or 30 or 40,000 people were killed. Uh, and in the aftermath of it, the Venezuelan military said, wow, you know, we didn't really sign up to shoot our own people. And, um, and, um, and they, a lot of them decided they were going to do something about it. Among them, Hugo Chavez, a colonel at the time. And, uh, and they tried a coup because it was the same government trying to do something bad, you know, to the people. And, and so they tried a coup. didn't work so well. Chavez went to prison um, as one of the coup masters. And, um, and he did some time in prison. And then when he got out of prison, just like Nelson Mandela in South Africa, he ran for president, won overwhelmingly, because the people had decided that he was, he and the coup guys were actually trying to keep from killing the people, you know, the Venezuelans. Well, our American Pentagon had the same kind of problem. Here was Trump in power, you know, full of all kinds of shenanigans. And, um, and, uh, and they didn't really apparently feel like, uh, you know, being used against the own, their own people. And they didn't want to be the ones that went down in history as the guys who ushered in fascism. And so, um, so uh, but as it played out, you know, they, they did their whatever maneuvers they could to try and keep from being used as pawns, but, uh, but there was some elements within the military that clearly showed up, you know. Um, I guess all of that, you know, I, I, I had a, a vest that I had a little patch that I've had for years because I was a military resistor. I was convicted of mutiny. So, you know, I guess it, you know, takes one to know one. Well, this was sort of mutinous stuff going on here, but, uh, but, um, uh, and, and my patch said, um, support GI resistance or something like that. And I realized that in, you know, most of my adult life, I've always assumed that the GI resistance would be peaceniks like me resisting bad wars. Um, and, and, you know, it was sort of implied that the left was the, was the resistors. Now, all of a sudden, you can't tell that anymore. Like, you know, the right wing 
the Trumpster types and the and the uh, all these kinds can can sing a lot of the protest songs that we used to sing, you know, um, and and it's like they're stealing our turf, you know. We had that stuff kind of locked down, you know, and and everybody knew that when the protest songs came on, they were from the left, and everybody knew that if there was GI resistors, it was, you know, progressive people uh, resisting bad wars, and now you can't say that anymore. I actually cut that patch off of my my, my uh, vest. Because in the current context, a GI resistor might be somebody who's refusing to get their vaccine, or it might be some Trumpster that, that um, you know, uh, was happy to invade the citadels of, of government. Um, and, uh, you know, what a shock it is. I mean, we went from in the 60s or very early 70s, um, where um, anti-war uh, veterans and GIs were throwing their medals back at the Capitol building, you know, saying, the Vietnam War is really sucky, and we're here to tell the American public how bad it is. And they were throwing their, you know, medals over that fence and back to onto the steps. And then we've come to and 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 now we come to today where it's right wingers attacking the Capitol and actually going inside and you know tearing things up and doing weird stuff. And you know, uh, I guess Klein was right. You know, it's not always a good, you know, GI movements aren't always good. And we, right. and we clearly have to d differentiate them. The most interesting thing, though, in my mind, is the fact that I bet you that the veterans or others who stormed the Capitol, you know, they took, a, they took an oath, right, to uphold the Constitution. <laughs> and I, I can't help but think that in their mind, they yeah. thought they were. Yeah. And that's the kind of the, the thing that I that I find interesting is that both sides kind of yeah. think that they're justified in whatever they do, you know, and can say, oh, I'm trying to uphold the Constitution because, you know, somebody's stealing the election. Both yeah. sides accuse the other side of stealing the election. So therefore, we can do weird stuff to, you know, even though we took an oath to uphold the Constitution. Right. I don't know. What do you guys think about that? Well, yeah. you know, in a. In, uh senior or even this, or the upper echelons of the military, they're pretty careful to say that they support the Constitution and will uphold the Constitution. And while there might be some, there are some right-wingers and discontents within the ranks, uh, they're not by any means a majority of the soldiers, although there's, the military is generally kind of a conservative, conservative organizations. But, um, you know, they've been very careful. Even what was it, McCauley, who uh, walked down Trump to when it cleared that protesters in D.C. in uniform, yeah. general, he regretted that. He says, I shouldn't have done that. And, uh, you know, the Joint Chiefs and other senior people are very pretty clear about their support of, uh, of constitutional law and the commanders. You know, although... <laughs> Under Trump, there were some of the commanders actually had uh, probably some second thoughts about his finger on the button. But, you know, as far as civil unrest, the military is pretty clear about that. And, and uh, that's not something that's really going to happen in any sort of large scale um, form in this country. What's well, not going to happen in large scale form? Um, military civil unrest, you know, military military units going rogue and sort of staging oh. crews. That, that's not really going to happen. Yeah, clearly we've got some we've got some right wingers in this country who are military who who would who do believe that that's a, a, actually an option. Sure. So that was General Mark Milley, is who uh, you're Mark, talking about. Yeah, yeah. yeah. 
Um, Kelly, was there something you wanted to get in? Um, yeah, there was. There, yeah. There's like a there's hundred like different things. Uh, right, yeah. <laughs> um, uh, I, one of the things I just so clearly remember after coming back and I only had one deployment and, you know, many of our veterans have many, many more than that. Mm. Um, but are the ways that, you know, it really does take a while for the adrenaline to recalibrate in your system and to get a, to get a different kind of grasp on power and one's role in the world. Like, um, I think one of our local authors, Carl, Carl Marlantis talked about it really well in one of his books that I read, what it's like to go to war. Like, I mean, he describes the ways that like power and these kinds of things can be addicting because it's such an adrenaline rush. Mm. Um, and I think there's some truth in that, uh, right? Like, like at some point, no matter how good of an idea it might seem, I think we, we need to have collective standards on what are the hard line behaviors that when you cross the line, like that it's now a problem, like peaceful protest is one thing. And no matter, right. Like, you know, you've crossed the line, not because you can trust necessarily everything you're thinking in the moment, but you know, there's a problem once it seems like a good idea to invade the Capitol building. Um, and, and engage in all of what came with it. Right. Um, and I'm even, I know we're gonna get to Ukraine in a minute, but I, I find myself even internally wrestling with that. Like, oh, like I read the Red One article and then I found myself thinking, oh, maybe it sounds like not such a bad idea, um, right? But coming back to this, like, <laughs> like, you know, almost like an objective standard of like, well, troops in war is what I oppose. So I therefore need to find a way to get myself from thinking, oh, it seems like not a bad idea <laughs> to a place where it does seem like a bad idea, right? Like these, I think, I think those kinds of things, I don't think we have enough of like, what are the, you know, what are the things we can look at even in ourselves and say that concrete behavior is an indicator that I need to either fix my thinking rethink what I'm doing, stop what I'm doing, evaluate it in another kind of way. But like, right, th those phase lines that once you've crossed it, you know, it's a problem. And I think that that was one of the things that was clear for me after January 6th was, you know, just how permeable that that line seemed to many of the folks who were there. Right, right. Well, I there's a, um, like you said, there's a lot to talk about here. Um, just to address what you just said about lines, though, I think our society does put some lines out there, but there are lines far away from where our lines might be, right? Because our society is very violent and it's okay to be violent and men are taught to be violent. And, and in fact, the more power and violence that you can show, the, the, the more many times you're respected and uplifted. You know, so um, I think that part of the reaction and, that, and as um, uh, Randy was saying about the veterans, many of them thinking 
And many of the people, not, not just the vets, thinking that they are defending against a, you know, how we say um, enemy foreign and domestic, you know, yeah. defend against the constitution against enemies foreign and domestic. Some of those, some of those veterans use that language. And we do, we use that language too. So that is very true that many of them thought they were doing the right thing. Um, and the military actually has tolerated racism and bigotry and certainly misogyny yeah. and patriarchy within his ranks uh, forever, um, just like the Republican Party. I mean, Democrat, Republican, left, right, whatever, all that is there. Um, but it's more prevalent and, and I guess more virile on the right. And just like the Republican Party uh, let it fester and be there and thought they could use it as a tool. I'm not exactly sure why the army thought it was okay and maybe they could use it as a tool except for it's tied into, I think, militarism, you know, and, and patriarchy is definitely tied into militarism. And we, and our wars are really racist wars more than not, not that we won't go and fight, you know, in Europe and kill white people too, not saying that, but on whole, our foreign policy and our wars are racist wars. So a lot of what we're seeing was just always simmering right under this facade. And now it's busted through the facade. You know, it's kind of um, what's happening. And people are like so shocked. It's just like, I don't know why, because, you know, we, 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 we've all seen it, you know? Um, so gosh, there was one other, one other point. <laughs> so I, I can't remember what it is. Uh, it looked like Mike, you wanted to say something else. Well, no, I just sort of you're talking about uh, racism. It is never, at least in this this Capitol Hill uh, uh, insurrection, never more visible to me than than what this this police officer told the committee uh, the stand down about all the racial slurs that were, you know, yelled at him. Right. There's a Capitol Hill police, black police officer, and there are these people who are trying. And it wasn't just about the election stolen. It was, as you say, about racism. Yeah. And that's Trump's whole thing. You know, that's a, a real major part of, of what Trump's about and why many of these people, I'm not going to say all of them, but the, I believe the mass, vast majority of the mortar that holds his coalition together is about race and is also about patriarchy because there's a certain type of male um, that many people want to be. And a number of the black men who support Trump support him because of that patriarchal streak that runs through that movement, as well as this idea of money. You know, so those, those are really important things. And Randy, I saw you wanted to say something. Let me just tell you all one other thing that the, the military, the Department of Defense is claiming that it's trying to address the racism. And the Secretary of Lloyd, Secretary Lloyd Austin ordered a one day stand down in the spring to discuss extremism, and they they have also formed a <laughs> counter extremism working group. So those are the ways that you know you're going to have a stand down and talk about it. Um, so any for one day at that. So Randy, you want to? <laughs> well, you know, I, I imagine they are probably addressing it in a variety of ways. I yeah. mean, if they had any sense, they are because you know they're counting on loyal troops and. Uh, uh, you know, because who knows when they're going to need them for what next. I think that in some ways, the thing, you know, a lot of people who serve in the military 
after their service, uh, whatever form it takes, come out with some disillusionment uh, uh, about, you know, I mean, they had experiences, you know, they saw the babies being killed or whatever, you know, uh, maybe not that extreme, but sometimes that extreme. And, and, um, and, uh, and, and then the question, of course, is for them as individuals um, is, you know, how, how to make sense of that. Because now they're coming back to, you know, a country that is full of all the mythology that sent them off into the military in the first place, and they are disillusioned. I think that, um, you know, it's really important for, you know, so oftentimes, you know, you got to have kind of like a context. In a sense, it's the same thing that every lieutenant is supposed to do, you know, is, is for their unit, they're supposed to kind of convince the people of, what their place in the universe is and why it's important to act heroically, you know, and follow the orders or whatever, you know, and, and, uh, you know, a, a good Lieutenant convinces his crowd that they're fighting for the right thing. And, and, you know, follow me boys, you know, and, you know, an asshole, I suppose just says, well, if you don't do what I tell you, then you're going to get in trouble. Hmm. But, uh, but uh, the, my point being that uh, groups like vets for peace or other groups, you know, all kinds of groups, uh, really need to have a context or a way for people to understand the experience that they had. We try to offer that, I think. Um, and I think how, how important it is, you can see it when you see these veterans storming the Capitol building, yeah. knocking over the stuff and tearing the crap off the walls and, you know, on and on and on. Why, you know, that's, uh, you know, that's not exactly you know, what they signed up for when they, when they raised their hand and stepped forward or whatever they did, you know, to get into the military. All I'm saying is that it's, it's, it's so important to have a perspective, a bigger picture perspective of how this all fits together because we think that people should be disillusioned too after they go off to some foreign land and do bad stuff to somebody that really doesn't deserve it. And, um, but the, but the point then is from our point of view is that, that they should then dedicate themselves to making the world a better place and meaning, you know, less injustice, less oppression, less, um, uh, you know, uh, exploitation or whatever, you know, um, and more peace. Well, you know, uh, the other side, of course, is looking for those same people now being discharged or whatever and with all their disillusionment and saying, we've got a different you right. know, thing we, we think it's those whatever whoever the bad guys are that they're you know if you think about the nazis it was oh it's the jews you know i don't know exactly who the right wing is whispering you know and pointing at black people maybe or i don't know what maybe but are you uh, serious? <laughs> actually the oath keepers actively, Come on. the oath keepers actively recruit veterans yeah and uh, they're a right wing organization and uh they go after veterans and try and get them into this sort of right wing sort of paranoia. Yeah, it's any, it's it's it, you don't know. Come on, I mean, it's white supremacy is the language, and so yeah. it's people of color and specifically black people. I mean, it could be any person of color. The Mexicans, Trump coming down the, the uh, stairway or the escalator, and the first thing he starts to do is talk about Mexicans, right? But. Um, you all they do all the time. I'm just amazed at how many times they just wave a black person. They say something about Obama. They say something about um, 
uh, Black Lives Matter. I mean, just pay attention and just listen oh, yeah. for them talking about a black person to just try to gin up people getting upset. So yes, it's definitely um, racism and white supremacy. That's the main thing. And that gets back to that point that I said I was forgetting about. And, and I guess we can maybe transition into talking about Ukraine, unless people have more to say. Um, when you were saying about, Kelly, about people um, needing to be clear what they're, when they come back home, what it is, the vision of what they're going to fight for or be for or stand up for. Well, for a number of them, it is a white supremacist state. And they're very clear on that. It's, they're not confused. What they're upset about is that it doesn't look like that anymore, that things are changing. It, and, it, and just think about how it's changed, but it's still a majority white people. And in many of these places is a super majority white people. But yet people are getting upset um, about something that's not even happened or isn't even going to happen where they live, you know, but but it's the it's, it's the specter of the black man, you know, taking over. You know, so um, that's a big that's a big part of what's happening. And they're real clear. The thing is trying to shift our nation to where it can face like the 1619 Project. One of the things that it's trying to do is help the nation face its past in a real way, but in a way that allows us to create the future that we claim we are already, you know, that where there, where there is freedom for everyone. That That's the. That's what 1619 is trying to do. And that's basically what Black people, really, activists have been trying to do. The ones that aren't like, let's separate from these people. <laughs> you know, the ones that aren't saying that are saying, no, we don't need to separate. We could just, we can make this country better. You know, so I don't know if people want to talk about that for a little while and then well, we can move because on. It's their, it's because it's their country. Yeah, ours. Yeah, they are the white supremacists. Yeah, yeah, that's true. Any thoughts or... I think one of the inside the military, one of the issues that's really not sorted out yet that remains just a mixed bag is this ethic of whether it's okay to attack one's own, um, right? Like I think that there is a tolerance in attacking one another's own service members, right? And then you're like, how's that? How's that at all consistent with the mission? Right. Like how does taking out a couple of your own service members, either, you know, through all different kinds of means, uh, how is that how is that a disciplined approach to the mission at hand? Right. And you're right. like, it's not yet. It's tolerated to some degree. Um, right. And so I think there are some veterans who or those who are still in who see that for what it is. And then others that actually get trained in the ethic of well it's it's okay to sort of like say you're all on one team but then kind of when you feel like it just take one down verbally physically you know all different kinds of ways um and i don't think the military has sorted that problem out yet very well no they easily could right like how how come attacks on service members by service members isn't treason or Right. right. Some, something pretty significant rather than like a hand slap. And you're and in many ways, I don't know if you mean to, but you're speaking to military sexual assault at, at, at its worst. You know, yeah. murder, we could say being the worst, um, but on a on a systemic and consistent basis, women find themselves under the kind of duress 
in the military that you're talking about. So if it's okay for me to do this to this soldier, and we're talking about extreme violence to this person, then anything in between, you know, anything short of that, it, obviously that's okay. Which it totally <laughs> is, right? right? Like the military sexual trauma with men, like all different other kinds of violence, racism, right? Like that, yeah. all that in between area does exist. Right. And then, you know, sometimes I think the approach is, well, let's just fix the worst of it rather than the pipeline mm. that leads to it. Mm. Like that teaches everyone, oh, here's the steps you can take of worse and worse and worse behavior rather than kind of nipping it much sooner. Mm. Oh. Um, you know, I've talked with Kelly and Michael too about this before, but for, for me, it's a, uh, it, the problem, one of the problems is the commanders Mm -hmm. I'm talking about relatively low-level commanders, like company commanders. You're talking about 200 people around uh, a, a captain and a, and a couple of lieutenants, uh, several lieutenants. They run a company, and for them not to know that there is racist remarks, white power remarks, uh, sexual assaults, they're going, is beyond my comprehension. As an E5, I could have run a company and I would have started court martialing people. Mm -hmm. would, you'd know this sort of thing goes on in a, 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 a company of 200 men. You know what's happening. You can't, mm -hmm. you can't hide that sort of thing. They're all together. And the fact that they don't do anything about it is because they're afraid of their careers or something. But they're certainly in violation. They've, they've uh, failed in their duty as commanders and as uh, supporters of the Constitution. And actually, I do agree with you. It is treason for a commander to let that sort of stuff go let racist remarks, sexist remarks go. It's, it's, it's a, talk about a failure of command. Right, right. I think that it's so built into the system because mm. so much of, uh, of training, military training uh, and preparation for, uh, for war, you know, it's not soldiers fighting other soldiers so often, it's soldiers fighting civilians and you got to dehumanize people in order mm. to allow that to, yeah. And, and, you know, the, and that so, you know, racism and sexism are like the pillars, yeah. I think, of, uh, of American military, uh, because it's always being used to against some civilians somewhere, you know, and that's right. You know, how do you do that? And then go home to mama and, you know, pretend like everything's OK. Well, um, the discussion we're having, we're in the I, I feel like we're talking about um, the way that a uh, soldier or service person, service member, if you want to call it that, the way they should act as opposed to how many of them do um, and how there's a, a, a code that, that they're expected to follow, um, an ideal. Um, and interestingly, the Justice Department, you know how there's always this question that if a soldier commits a crime, should, they, uh, should there be some leniency um, if they're found guilty of it because of their service, maybe post-traumatic stress or whatever the different issues that might lead to them having a crime. And many times we argue as Veterans for Peace for people to look at it that way. Uh, so there's been a discussion about um, the veterans who participated in the insurrection. Should there be leniency or should there be uh, more, should they be punished harsher for uh, what they did? And according to this article I read, the Justice Department is, is using it as more of a reason for them to have jail time um, or to be arrested and, and to be prosecuted 
And I don't know if it's because they feel like it makes them more dangerous that they're um, a vet. And in many ways, that's true because our training allows for us to be able to do some things that most civilians might not be willing to do or know how to do. Um, but, but right now, at least according to, and I'm sorry, I can't remember what article it was I read, the Justice Department is looking at that as a reason to hold them more accountable. So I, I appreciate that myself. Yeah. I think that uh, um, one of the interesting things that, you know, so often we, um, we find ourselves on the left being, you know, um, not all that happy with the system. And, um, you know, uh, and at this particular moment, it's the right wing that's kind of out of sync with the system, so to speak. Mm. Um, and and right. uh, uh, it's kind of a peculiar moment for all of us in that respect. Well, we um, might be on the edge. We're going to see. <laughs> that, that's, that's the thing. That's why we got to be active, because I'm not sure. You know, I wasn't surprised when Trump won. I wasn't surprised there was a January 6th insurrection. I told my wife that I'm more concerned about what's going to happen on January 6th than I am at the inauguration. So when I got up and saw it was happening, I was not surprised. I was I was um, fixed, fixated. Is that the right word on the TV watching it? But I was like, oh, what I thought was going to happen, happened. you know, so I'm not sure. Um, so let's go ahead and, and talk a little bit about Ukraine. And actually, um, if we run over time, either I'll edit it or um, we'll just direct people to go to the website and listen to the full podcast. They just just hear this part on the radio. So, um, so right now there's a drumbeat, I guess, or or I don't know if it's a manufactured um, urgency or if there. There, to some degree, there's a real urgency because there are 120,000 troops on the border of Ukraine. So that's true, right? But the, to the degree that it's something that everyone should be afraid about, who really knows? But there's a lot of talk going on in the news about the possibility of uh, Russia invading Ukraine. And obviously, the United States is in the middle of it, or we wouldn't be talking about it because there's all kinds of conflicts going on around the world, but there's not much talk about those. So I just, we just wanted to talk a little bit and hear what people think. And we also want to try to get out some real information to help people think about um, what's happening and why it might be happening. And Kelly, I have to say, I'm a little fascinated about you saying that you were reading some things and, you know, you were like, oh, maybe this isn't a bad idea. So first of all, what might not be a bad idea? Because I'm not sure what that was. And <laughs> What you know, just tell us a little bit about, about what you were thinking. Um, yeah, if you don't mind, I don't mean to put you on the spot, but no, definitely put well, yourself on the spot. I um, <laughs> I'm definitely a a peace activist that is a work in progress, and my first handful of years were really, I would just call them wonderful, like almost dreamy. Like I just met wonderful people. I had access to all kinds of like great information. Like I was learning a ton. Like it was just a really great, I would call it a honeymoon, like my honeymoon in the activist movement. And now I would say I've started my next chapter and it's a harder chapter. I don't think it's, um, and I think it's 
a common one, but like right now I'm fatigued from COVID. Like I have kids in school. So there's all of that, you know, are they open? Are they closed? They've had violent threats all throughout the fall. I started a new job. Like, so I've been less connected with a lot of the more in-depth resources about what's happening in Ukraine. So, um, so I found myself, I was like, oh, we're talking about it tonight. I should go like read a few things. So I, I would not call it in depth. I would not, I would just call it very average. Like I just went and read the things that I would guess like an average American reads. And, and I was like, oh, maybe it's, maybe we should. And then, and, and I found that was where I found my internal process of like, okay, this, this is like a new chapter. Like, I am committed to the peace process. So rather than it just being handed to me, I now have to walk myself to get there. Like, like rather than having my end be determined by the media or by the, the going narrative, right? It is my commitment to get myself to this other place but in my new chapter where life just feels overwhelming, it feels like, oh, this is, this is the part of being a peace activist that's a discipline. Like I had many years where it, it didn't feel like hard work. It, it just felt, it was a really enjoyable experience. And now I'm just in a chapter where like, this is a discipline and a practice that I'm going to just have to not, not even dust off those skills. <laughs> like develop them so that like I have the endurance, you know, the endurance to continue to engage. Like I feel like I'm, I'm not done reeling yet from the fall from this past fall and all of that Afghanistan, like change, right? Like, I just feel like I'm exhausted. Like I need a break before I have to like think about something like the Ukraine. Like, can we just have, can we have like a national stand down like the military is having, so we all can just have a mental health day, regroup ourselves before entering back, back into the fray. But that's not the reality. Like the drumbeat is happening. And so, so that's just like, that's just kind of the honest places to like, it's just a new place. I would, I would call it not, not nearly as lovely as my first couple years, Yeah. but, but I feel like it's a real place of, all right, like from what I hear, not just from what I hear, but like, how, how do we get ourselves out of that? How do we, how do we, how do we maneuver back out so that Ukraine is not moving to the brink? Like, what is that work? So it's almost like there's a parallel process within my own self and mm. within the international work. That's kind of the same, like, mm -hmm. Right. Like there's some there's some shared space there. Mm -hmm. Wow. Thank you. That's very interesting. And um, I think useful for peace activists to think about as we uh, do our work, because we are trying to reach, like you said, average people. And without doing that, we're not going to make a change. Um, Randy, you have some. Well, um, I'm an old activist. <laughs> um, and here's what I've noticed over my many years is that, you know, I remember when uh, Americans were 
so concerned with Afghan women that they were supporting the notion of the United States invading Afghanistan, you know, mm-hmm. even though, frankly, Afghanistan had, wasn't responsible for 9-11 or any of that other stuff. But, you know, the excuse that, that was being thrown around quite a bit was, oh, well, we've got it. What about the Afghan women or whatever? And I, I remember people who were really serious anti-war peace activists during the Vietnam days who, who thought that we should probably invade yeah. Iraq because, uh, because, I mean, after all, Saddam Hussein was, you know, like had gassed his own people or done something bad, you know. Um, and almost every one of these things that we later come to say, oops, we really shouldn't have been doing that. Why, um, almost every one of those, there was all kinds of justifications that kind of almost seemed right. You know, well, you know, what about the Afghan women? Or, you know, damn, that's Saddam Hussein. You know, he was the scumbag or whatever, you know, on and on and on. And so, so one of the things that I've learned anyway, is that uh, uh, you don't have to love the, your enemy or the, that is to say, you don't have to love the enemy that they're claiming is our enemy, you know, uh, in order to be against uh, military um, action. Now in Ukraine, the truth is, as I understand the story, the U.S. stirred this stuff up with a big stick anyway, just a few years ago and kind of got it going. And now, uh, you know, there, because uh, there was a coup not, just a few years ago um, that, was, that a lot of people blame on the United States. And, and, um, uh, and all of a sudden, the United, uh, the, you know, Russia was kind of like pretty grumpy, I imagine, about all that. And, uh, uh, and so, but in, inevitably in war, each side claims that the other guy shot first. Each side claims that the other ones are the bad guys. Each side always claims that that uh, the provocative action was the one that they identify, and they ignore what happened the day before, you know, uh, or the day after, you know, all that stuff. And so, so I think principle number one is that we should be opposed to our own government going around the world and throwing its weight around and, and doing military stuff, uh, you know, that. Uh, with great consequence. Now, frankly, we're in no position, as far as I can tell, in a conventional sense, to, if they've got 120,000 troops, I don't even think we could come up with 120,000 troops to put on a border somewhere. You know, <laughs> I don't know what our, the size of our military is, but that's a hell of a lot of people. <laughs> and, and so if, if that goes down, it's going to get out of hand really quickly and really ugly. I'm not sure either side really wants that. Um, but... Um, but uh, but my f- first principle is always be opposed to your own government doing bad stuff, you know, and and always be suspicious of your own government when they talk about how bad the other guy is, because even if they are bad, chances are you really don't want to get into that war. You know, we really you know, looking back now, 20 years later, Afghanistan was a terrible error. You know, Iraq never needed to happen. And it's a popular summation that it was a totally needed needless war, you know, um, you know, Syria, the same thing, you know, on and on and on Vietnam, you know, I mean, the, the history of almost every conflict you can think of, you can almost immediately come up with what now the verdict of history is, which is that we really shouldn't have been doing that. And that I think is worth holding on to in the fog of the moment. Yeah. So that's my first point. Um, and I'll, I'll stop there for a minute. Let somebody else weigh in. <laughs> okay. I was going to be like, that's your first point. Okay. <laughs> Can I say something in response to Randy? Well, Randy mentioned Vietnam, and um, one of their peace activists, Thich Nhat Hanh, died yeah. recently. 
just in the past couple of days. And I only knew him in his, you know, his later life, some of his later work. And um, he, I, what I didn't know was a lot about his origins and his beginnings. And he began as uh, calling for the end of the Vietnam War and calling for the end of those hostilities. And at some point, ended up as like the identified, like, like an, an enemy of the state of like in three different places simultaneously, like North wow. Vietnam, South Vietnam, the United States, like, and then you're like, everyone's because he's calling for peace. Everyone's all calling him a traitor for their side. Wow. Uh, yes. I thought it I his early, his early life is really, I think quite fascinating. Um, so, yeah, so that, that kind of reminded me of, you know, as some of the dialogue is, you know, ramping up around the Ukraine. And just for the record, I'm not pro the Ukraine war. I'm just sure, honestly, like, yeah. sometimes it's like hard to like keep up with like just the information and the facts. Um, but to see some of those parallels, like start to. All right, we're out of time but the conversation continues. You can hear the rest of it at vfp92.org. Thank you for listening to our show and give big thanks to our guests, veterans and local chapter members, Randy Rowland and Kelly Wadsworth. The clip you heard of David Klein is from the documentary Operation Veteran Freedom by Iraq War veteran, Nicholas Prisbilla. The theme music you hear is Victory from the Passion Hi-Fi. You can hear his music at thepassionhi-fi.com. Don't forget to hear the rest of the interview. Check us out at vfp92.org. That's www.vfp92.org. And again, thank you for tuning in. And until the next time, power to the people.